Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. I know I'm not the first one that gets to say that, but I'm glad I get to say it again. So thank you for being here. Whether you're in the room or you're joining us online, we're just glad that you're here. And we want you to know something that is important to us that we know is important to you. And that is that this is a safe place for you to ask the questions that you have. You have questions about the Bible, about God's Word, about Jesus, about faith, about the purpose of life. We know you do. Everybody has those kinds of questions. And so we want you to know this is a safe place for you to ask those questions and dig in with wherever you are, whether you're a follower of Christ or you're not or somewhere in between. And so we're just glad that you're here today. So we are at the very end. Today is the last Sunday in our series that we've been in called Puzzled by the Bible. The reason we're talking about Puzzled by the Bible is sometimes we approach God's Word, the Bible, as if it's a puzzle. We know pieces of it, verses, stories, and we sometimes think that they're a random mishmash of a whole bunch of different things and they just kind of threw them together and it became some sort of a book. But that could not be further from the truth. The truth is that the Bible is one big, unified, complete story. One big picture that God has been telling from beginning to end and everything in between. And so that's what we've been talking about. Now, uh, just so that we know, I've said this every single week because it's important to say that this content, a lot of the material, a lot of the ideas, came originally from a guy named Pastor Kevin Myers who preaches at a church called Twelve Stone Church. It was 10 years ago that he delivered this message, this series, and so we've been kind of holding on to it for a long time, so to speak, until it was right to pull it out, and so this is the right time. So let me ask you a question. How many of you, and I'm just curious how many of you would remember this, how many of you remember in 2004, it was the day after Christmas, it was December 26th, 2004, when that massive tsunami hit in Southeast Asia. How many of you remember that happening? I remember my heart breaking when I saw the news and, and the incredible devastation of that. Still to this day, that is the worst tsunami in recorded history. Just to give you an idea, I want to show you a picture of Banda Aceh, which is a city in northern Indonesia, and it was one of the worst hit areas. Let's go ahead and take that and show you that picture. Complete devastation. I had tears when I pulled this up on my computer. I, I just about did just now, too. I mean, it's just horrific. It was unbelievable the destruction and the devastation that the tsunami wreaked. Just to give you an idea, I have a before and after picture of this same spot. Go ahead and go to there, and you can see on the top is the devastation. Before is what it looked like. It's hard to even, you can't, it doesn't even look like the same place except for the little canal that goes through it. That doesn't even look like the same place. Now, there's a reason I bring this up. There was incredible devastation. 230,000 people lost their lives in that tsunami. Almost a quarter of a million people in one event. But the reason I bring it up is because something else very weird happened during the tsunami. Even though 230,000 people lost their lives, almost no animals died in the tsunami. That's weird, isn't it? In fact, there was a national wildlife refuge where there were millions of animals in Sri Lanka, the island just off of India. 
And in this zone, this wildlife refuge, there were tons of people that perished in the tsunami, but they found no animal corpses anywhere. No animals died. And then reports started to come out in the days and the weeks after the tsunami, and people began to share and say, it was really weird. I I had my elephant there. Literally, they have elephants there, right, in the jungles. And they said, my elephant broke the tether that we had them tied to this pole and broke it and ran off, became agitated. Monkeys fled. Birds were flying away. Insects left the area. The animals, in other words, knew something bad was coming And they took action, and they sought higher ground, and they survived. So you might say, why are we starting that way? That's kind of an ominous beginning. Well, the reason is because, guess what? We get to talk about the most ominous book in the Bible today, and that would be called Revelation. It's a book that, let's be honest, as human beings, we both fear and are intrigued by, right? It's kind of like when somebody, uh, somebody, uh, this is, uh, I'm already way off base, now you know where we're going to go today. It, it was, I, I was dropping my, uh, the two boys off uh, to high school on uh, one of the days this last week, I can't even remember, and somebody got pulled over in the parent loop by a police officer. And I was like, oh, how good is that? Literally, a third of Wanakee is going to pass by you in the next five minutes because they're all dropping people off. All the high schoolers are coming to park their cars, and they're all like, ooh, you know what I did? I did what all of you would do. Don't judge me. Who is it? Who is it? (laughs) So sorry for you. There's this fascination we have with things that are not good, yet we have to look. Today, I'm going to be honest with you, is one of the more intense sermons that we will ever have here at Northridge Church because it talks about the end, the end of all things, or pretty much all things. We're going to talk about the end today. And so today, I want to be kind of like one of those animals. I want to kind of give credence to there's something coming, and my hope is that every person in here and online agrees and realizes that we need to seek higher ground. We need to seek higher ground. And so we're going to get into it today, but let me just start by getting into Scripture, the book of Revelation. I'm going to start by quoting the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. And and the part that I'm going to actually quote is in the end of all things. It's when the end has happened and is happening. And it starts by talking about Jesus in chapter 21. And I want to read what it says about Jesus who is sitting on a throne. This is not the last time you're going to hear this. You're going to hear this several times today. Okay, Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, talks about Jesus. Let me read it for us. And the one sitting on the throne, this is Jesus, said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. So understand that the Apostle John is writing this down, and he's got this vision, and this is where this all comes from, directed by God. Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, in other words, to all who seek God, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, how many of you here are like, man, I'm so excited that you started the sermon with that passage? I bet you don't, because this is not something we hang up on our wall. This is not something that we frame. This is not something where we're like, man, I just need some light reading before bed. I'm just suggesting if you decide to start reading the Bible today, tonight, don't choose the book of Revelation before sleeping, right? Because it doesn't go well. It'll just get your mind going. You'll be like, ah, you know, it's just, it's intense stuff because it's talking about the end. Now, here's the truth. We probably wish the Bible didn't say some of these things, right? I'm with you. I'm a relational guy. I'm a nice, good, like, good feely kind of guy. You guys know that, right? I, I like hugs. I'm like, I like warm fuzzies. I'm like, like yeah, I'm not, uh, that's the kind of stuff that I, and so when I read this stuff, I kind of, there's something in me that just hurts. You understand? Kind of like showing a picture that I just showed of Banda Aceh in, in Indonesia. It, it just, my heart hurts. So a lot of us wish that the Bible didn't say that, but the truth is, and this, there's going to be a lot of harsh truth here today, but it is truth that wishful thinking does not make something true, right? Wishful thinking doesn't make something true. There's a lot of things that I wish were true, but they're just not. For example, I wish I had more hair. No, 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 I really do. I will blind you just for a second, okay? If the sun was coming down, I guarantee you, nobody would be able to see anything because it would just be like, ooh, I have a halo, but it's not the holy kind. You understand. I wish I was taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was a little bit. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I just went there. I was talking with, about arcades and all kinds of stuff with guys this morning. I'm serious. I had to go there, right? No, but I do wish I was taller. I am one of the few in our church that cannot put up these curtains without a chair. Most of our church can. I can't. I'm like, where's a chair? Brent, we got this. Thank you. I wish, there's a lot of things I wish. I wish things wouldn't break down. I wish our ice maker worked at our house. It's still broken two, two weeks ago. Woo-hoo! Right? There's a lot of things I wish. And there's little things that we wish, but then there's big things that I wish. I wish there was no cancer in this world. You guys understand why I wish that. I wish there was no death. I wish there was no pain. I wish there was no brokenness. But the problem is wishful thinking doesn't make it true. We can wish all we want, but it doesn't make it true. And so wishful thinking is one of those things where we kind of attach ourselves to God's word and we'd like to just kind of throw some parts out of it. Right? Let's be honest. There are some things in the Bible that I would like to just throw out. And so what we do is we take like the book of Revelation, right? And, and we like, I, I don't like the book of Revelation. I, I don't like some of those things. It says that God's going to judge and all that kind of stuff. And so here's what we do. You know what we do? 
we rip out the book of Revelation. We're like, we can't, that's too judgmental. That's harsh. So it's got to go. But here's the problem. If we rip out the book of Revelation, John wrote the book of Revelation. You know what we have to do? We have to throw out the rest of stuff, the stuff that John wrote in the Bible. He wrote other stuff too. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the Gospel of John. And so we have to get rid of that stuff too. It's got to be out. You can't trust him. If you, if you discard Revelation, you have to discard everything that John wrote because he's clearly not trustworthy, right? And if you throw away the stuff that John wrote, clearly the disciples and the apostles were all in the same boat together, right? Jesus was in the same boat. And so you've got to lose Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Gospels have to go. That was a lot more, so I had to get rid of a lot more. You have to lose it. And then, by the way, the Old Testament, they quote the Old Testament all the time. And like Isaiah, Micah, they quote a whole bunch of the Psalms. And so you have to go back into the Old Testament, right? And you've got to rip out major sections of the Old Testament. It's got to be gone. Now, here, here's what I'm going to say. How much of the Bible are you going to rip out until it fits with your beliefs? No, seriously. Are you trying to make God fit into your box, or are you trying to follow the God who is? By the way, those of you that are worried that I'm ripping up the Bible, this is just a wine guide that I got for like $2 (laughs) this last week. Some of you were ticked, weren't you? I know you were. I would have been too. I'm like, you're ripping up God's word? Come on. Nope, it's just a wine guide. I think we can deal with it. We're good. How much are you going to rip out until it fits with your view of how things should be? Just so that you're clear, God's not trying to fit your box. We need to fit God's. Wishful thinking is not how this works. The truth is that the Bible, yes, now I have the real one, the the Bible, God's Word, is one big story. God's been telling one big story His whole life from beginning to end. He's been telling one big story, and it's always been the same, and it's always been centered on Jesus. Let's review really, really quick. The Bible is made up of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the old contract between God and people. It's a promise that God made with people through Abraham. The nation of Israel, he's gonna, the nation of Israel is going to be God's holy people, the 12 tribes of Israel. God's holy people is the first promise between God and people. And then there's a new promise because of Jesus called the New Testament, the new contract. It was a contract that was between God and people, and the new contract very simply said, all you have to do to have forgiveness of sins is receive Jesus. All you have to do is accept Jesus. Now, each of these parts of the Bible, there's five events that lead up to Jesus, and there's five events that descend after Jesus, but they also still point back to Jesus. Let's talk about the five on either side. The first event in the Old Testament is God and righteous people in paradise. God creates a perfect world. First man, first woman in the perfect world. Everything's perfect. Woohoo! It's awesome. Until the second event. Satan and sin enter. Mess up the perfect world. 
leads to the third event. Things get so bad, God says, I have to destroy the entire world with a global flood. And so he does. And the only people who survive are Noah and his family on the ark. We know it as Noah and the ark. Then this leads us to the fourth event, which is where the world turns to a one-world government, and all the people seek to build this tower to become God themselves. And so God scatters them over the earth, and it leads us to the fifth and final event in the Old Testament, the Old Contract, which is where the Old Covenant is established between God and Abraham. And the rest of the Old Testament, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, it's all about God's holy people, the 12 tribes of Israel, and how they interact and how they relate with God. If you think about it, the entire Old Testament is all about the 12 tribes and how they interact with God, the Old Covenant. Now, this all leads us to the need for a Savior. And so the point, the pinnacle, the hinge, the key to the whole story is Jesus. He is the answer to sin. God says, I don't want anybody to die, and so therefore I'm going to give them a Savior. And so Jesus arrives. And then this ushers in five more events that are actually in perfect parallel to the first five events in the Old Testament, a perfect mirror image. They descend toward the end, which is what we're going to focus on here today. They focus on the end, but they point back to Jesus, why we still need Jesus. Let's talk about the other five events. We have the new covenant is established. This is the new agreement between God and people. He says, all you have to do to achieve salvation from sin is accept Jesus. That's it. That's all you have to do. Jesus did all the work. You just have to believe in it. Okay? Then it leads us to the next event. The next four events, the last four events, have not happened yet. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the end The last four events haven't happened yet. The next one is a one-world government. We're heading toward a one-world government. We're getting there. And where are we at? We're after the new covenant. We're not quite to the one-world government yet, so we're there. We've been there for 2,000 years. We might be there for 2,000 more. We might be there for another couple weeks. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. You know why I know that? Because the Bible tells us we don't know. It says no one knows the hour when Jesus is coming back. No one knows when this end is happening. We just know it's going to happen. We don't know when the tsunami is going to hit. We just know it's going to be here. You understand? And that leads us to the next event, the next three events. All of these, remember, have not happened yet. The world is judged and destroyed. First time was by a flood. This time it'll be by fire. I'm actually going to prove that today because we're going to read it about it out of the book of Revelation and 2 Peter. We're going to read about it. And then the next event, perfect parallel, Satan and sin entered, but now Satan and sin exit. Literally, God kicks them out for good, for all eternity. And that leads us to the fifth and final event, the best event, which is God and redeemed people, people who are followers of Christ, who chose to accept Jesus. God redeemed people in paradise for the rest of all time. Now, these last four events, if you look at them, one world government, world just judged and destroyed, Satan and sin exit, God and redeemed people in paradise, that explains pretty much the book of Revelation in summary. That's a summary. Those last four events are a summary of the book of Revelation. This is what's going to happen in the end. Now, what I want to focus on today is I want to talk about what ends in the end. That's a lot of ends, right? What ends in the end? That's what I want to talk about. Three main things. They're not the only things, but three main things that end. The first one is this. In the end, we will see the end of false. Falsehood 
deception, lies, in the end, they end. In other words, there will no longer be any deception. Everything will only be truth. Let me read kind of what it talks about with this. Revelation chapter 13. Now, let me give some context here. You understand we're going to have to bounce around a little bit because Revelation is kind of like, whoo! We're going like there's a beast and then there's bulls and then there's the angels and there's destruction and then Jesus comes. And, but then it's like the beast is given power, but then he's taken out and there's a lot of stuff, right? So we're going to bounce around a little bit. In this part that I'm about to read, it's talking about this thing called the beast, there's more than one beast, by the way, but this is talking about actually the second beast that is trying to support the first beast. Now, we don't know exactly what the beast is. We think it's probably a very powerful person in or on the earth that is ruling the one world government. That's what we think, but we don't know exactly what this means. We just know it's called the beast. All right, so let me read what it says about the beast. And, all, and with all the miracles he, that's the beast, was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived, did you catch that? He, he did what? He lied. He deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. In other, in other words, the beast is trying to get people not to worship God, but to worship him. Understand, when you see anybody setting up anything in place of God, that is a clear sign, a clear sign that they are not of God, but they are something else. No matter how good they look, even if they can do miracles, you understand that he's going to be allowed to do miracles. If that doesn't mess with your theology, I don't know what does. Revelation is a tough one. But that's what's going to happen. And then catch this. It says, He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. In other words, what this is telling you is that there will be a time in world history where we will have a one-world government that is ruled by these beasts, and they will make a an edict, a mandate, they will force people to get a mark, and the only way that you can buy and sell or trade goods, in other words, to get food, in order to get anything that you actually need to live and to survive, there's a time coming when the one world government will control that, and you will have to get a mark in order to buy and trade and sell, and that will be forced upon you, and it will be against God. We are headed toward a one world government. By the way, I, want to just, I just want to give you a little bit of homework here today. I do that very rarely. You understand I was a high school teacher, right? So homework is a normal thing for me. You'll like this homework. Actually, you may not, but try it anyway. I want you to go home, and you've heard of this thing called Google. It's a thing, right? I want you to go into Google, and I want you to look up sometime later today, sometime this week, I want you to Google one world government, one world currency. See if anybody else is talking about Seriously, do it. Let me just tell you what you'll find, first of all, but I'm thinking you're going to want to do it anyway. You're going to find news articles and news reports and videos and YouTube things, all news, all kind of stuff. You're going to find all kinds of stuff, thousands of major news things where they're talking about how people are pushing to do a one-world currency, one-world government, combine everybody together. What did Europe do a few years ago? Have you heard of the euro? 
We're not headed away from this. We're headed toward the one world government, you understand. We don't know how fast we're going to get there, but we're headed there. And that's what this is talking about. The next thing that uh, Revelation and the New Testament talks about is that the world is going to be judged and destroyed. Now, this is a part that we do not like to deal with. This is that whole wishful thinking, like we would like to rip these pages out and just be like, "Ah, I'd like to think that's not going to happen. The Bible declares that it is. Let me read. Actually, I'm going to take you out of the book of Revelation back to the book of 2 Peter. So the apostle Peter wrote this. Remember, he's the one that walked on the water with Jesus. He did all this stuff. Like, this is, this is that Peter. Okay? Listen to what he talks about, what he says. He says, they, these are people who go against Jesus, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. He's talking about Noah and the ark. He's quoting the Old Testament. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. In other words, they will be destroyed by fire in the future when the world is judged and destroyed. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. A lot of people have this wishful idea, this wishful thinking, that everybody is just good enough and they're going to make it. I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Specifically in Dane County, by the way, we have a large contingency of people who are universalists. I'm, I know you've heard of it. We have churches, universalist churches here. And what they believe is everybody's going to heaven because God loves everybody. The truth is, God loves everybody, and he gives everybody an option, a choice, to choose him, but not everybody takes it. That's the truth. And the Bible supports it. If you're mad at me, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the Bible and God. He can handle it. I can handle it too. But these are not my words. Now, you might say, well, man, that's pretty harsh. Why, hasn't, why don't we just get it over with? Why doesn't God just do it? Well, the reason is, and you guys already know where, probably where I'm going with this, the reason is because God doesn't want to do this. You understand that God doesn't want to do this. In fact, let me go to the next three verses where I just stopped. It says, ungodly people will be destroyed, but then this is the very next word. But. I didn't know my wife was going to bring up the word but earlier. Apparently, that's the theme here today. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Did you catch that? We'll come back to that. That's important. He does not want anybody to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent, to turn away from their sin. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. Again, the world will be judged and destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Why is God waiting to do this? 
because he wants as many people to choose him as possible so that they will not be destroyed. That's why. Because he loves them deeply, completely, and dearly. That's why he's waiting. He's patient. He loves you. And then this finally leads us to the the last event before the eternity and paradise thing. Satan and sin exit. Let me read what Revelation says about that moment. It's just one verse. Revelation 20, verse 10, it says this. Then the devil, Satan, who had deceived them, again, remember, the end of false is happening, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the end of false. Now, I want you to logically track with this. If, the, if, the, if it's the end of false, if false has ended, if there's no more false, if it's only truth, there's literally no possibility of deception anymore. All deception comes from Satan. All deception comes from Satan. If there's no false left, then this is interesting. The second thing that ends, and, and, and you're going to balk at this because I'm about to say this in church. But if it's the end of false, then at the end, it's also the end of faith. Think about it. The end of false requires that it's also the end of faith. What do you need faith to do? You need faith to believe in something that you can't fully understand and can't see, can't can't fully grasp. Well, guess what? In the end, everybody will fully be able to understand and grasp the truth, which is who God is. There will no longer be any deception or lies. In other words, everybody knows where everybody stands. There's nothing ever hidden at all. Therefore, there's no longer even needed faith. You don't need faith because everybody knows. It is the end of faith. In fact, listen to what happens in the very end. I'm going to go back to that whole judgment with Jesus thing. On the great white throne, Jesus is on the great white throne is what they call it in Revelation. Let me read what it says about Jesus in that moment, in the end. Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, again, that's Jesus, the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. Catch that. There's no place to hide in the end. That's important. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. All were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. We've heard that a couple of times, haven't we? And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't know about you, but when you hear that, that's scary stuff. But here's the hope in all of this. Jesus is the judge. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. You know why that's a good thing? Because the judge, the one who's going to judge who you are and what you've done and what you haven't done, the one who's going to judge you is also the same exact judge who also chose to die in your place 
And if you follow him, if you choose to accept him, here's what happens. Jesus will say, oh, this one? I, I know this one. I've already pardoned this one. They've already, they've already accepted me. We're good. The trial is, we're good. You're pardoned. That's what the cross is. The cross pardons you if you accept it. Jesus pardons you if you accept him. It is a good thing that Jesus is our judge. And so we have the end of false, we have the end of faith, and then there's a third thing that ends, and this is a really good thing that ends. It's actually a bad thing that ends, which makes it a good thing. It's the end of feudal. It's the end of feudal. When I say the word feudal, I, I don't know about you, but I don't go around using the word feudal very often. How many of you be like, man, that is just futile? I doubt you do. I don't either. That would be so weird. I know I'm weird, but I don't have to try to be more weird, right? So I don't use the word futile or futile, right? But what does the word mean? It means hopeless. It means there's no hope. There's no chance. There's nothing good. It's all pain. It's all suffering. It's all bad. No hope. It is hopeless. In the end, this is good news, it'll be the end of futile. It'll be the end of hopelessness. For followers of Jesus. All pain and suffering ends. Let me read this last part of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. By the way, if you're going to read a part of Revelation before you go to bed, chapter 21 is better. I'm just saying. Chapter 21 is good. Now, it's important to know the other stuff, but chapter 21 is like, oh, oh, that's a good one. That's hopeful. Yes. Listen to what it says. Verses 3 and 4 in chapter 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. Catch this. All these things are gone forever. Amen to that. That's a good day. Anybody in here long for a time and, an, and a reality where suffering and tears and pain and sorrow are gone? That's a good day. That's a good day. Now, here's the truth. I know that you're sitting there with probably at least a thousand questions. Because I'm standing here with at least that many. I, I'm, not, I'm not just trying to relate. I'm saying that's true. I have a thousand questions. For example, I'm going to throw a silly one out. Okay? I could throw a lot of serious ones out, but this is a silly one. And, and when I say it, you're going to know why it's silly, but you're also going to know why it's also serious. One of the, one of the, it's not even a fear or a worry that I have. I've just wondered it. Um, you know, I've wondered what is it going to be like to be in perpetual awesomeness and goodness all the time? I don't even want to live in Florida. I'm serious. I don't want to live in Florida because it's always warm. I'm like, I'm going to get bored. I, I'm serious. I know I'm, I'm, people look at me and they want to throw bricks at my face when I'm like, I actually like the winter. It's a hard change. It, it shifts things up. We have to have like movie nights and we have to stay inside because it's cold and it's awful outside. I'm like, I like that. This whole, like, it's 80, now it's 84, now it's 87, now it's really hot, now it's a little less hot, now it's a little more hot. I'm like, I don't want that. 
Some of you are from Florida. I know. I'm sorry. I'm glad you love it. I want nothing to do. And so I've wondered, I'm like, how is it going to be in heaven when everything is perfect and good all the time? Am I going to get tired of that? I don't know about you. I love chocolate and peanut butter combo together. It's like kind of like heaven on earth for me. It really is. Cookies, same way, like heaven on earth. Man, God, you are so awesome. Thank you for creating that. Seriously, it's like heaven on earth. But here's the truth. If I ate that for lunch and dinner every single day in a large way, after like a couple of days, two, three, four days, man, I am going to feel awful. That's what I wonder. Like, and I know I'm not going to feel awful because it says all pain, all sorrow, all bad stuff is gone. But I'm just wondering, how is it going to be like in perfection every single day? You're going to wake up. It's like, everything is awesome. <laughs> to quote a famous Lego movie. Right? I, 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 we have thousands of questions about heaven and about hell and about eternity and about God and about how this is going to look and how it's going to work and what does the judgment thing look with Jesus. I know we have all those questions. I have them too. But can we just stop and forget about some of those things for a minute and focus on what we do know? There is an end coming. And it will be the end of false. It will be the end of faith. And it will be the end of futile. But the key is that to avoid all the bad stuff that happens in the end, the key is that you seek higher ground, which is Jesus. You remember how we started, right? The animals? The animals knew it was coming, and they, what did they do? They did everything they possibly could. There were elephants and monkeys and, and other animals that broke their, their bonds, that, were t- that tied them to houses and posts and all that stuff. They broke their bonds because they had to do everything they could to get to higher ground because they knew they had to escape the judgment that was coming. Let me just tell you that God has offered you higher ground today. He has offered you higher ground. His name is Jesus. He died on high ground. And he asks simply that you join him in that salvation. Will you join Jesus in the salvation that he offered you? He died in your place so that you could have high ground. He wants you to have high ground. Remember what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. God does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to turn away from their sin. He wants everybody to be high ground. He wants nobody to perish. In fact, the most famous verse in the Bible, we see it quoted everywhere. What is it? John 3.16. Very rarely do I quote this on Sundays, but this is an important one. What does it say? For this is how God loved the world. This is how he loved people. He gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not die, but have eternal life. He's offered high ground to every single person on the planet who exists. Everybody's been offered the same deal. Everybody. The question is, have you received it? Will you accept it? So that in the end, when you're standing before Jesus, you will be able to humbly, but also confidently, approach the judge, and he will look at you and say, oh, I know this one. He's pardoned. She's pardoned. We're good. Will you accept 
the high ground that God has offered to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as human beings, it is difficult sometimes to face the end of things. It is hard for us to face difficult, judgmental kinds of things. We, we live in a culture where being judgmental is really frowned upon, and, and, and we actually, even as followers of Christ, would agree with that. But at some point, things have to become true. We have to stop living in a fantasy world of wishful thinking, and we have to realize that you are the ultimate Messiah, Savior, and judge and that you have offered to us because you love us unconditionally, completely, and deeply. You have offered us higher ground where we can spend eternity with you. You are truly our living, breathing hope in this universe, in this world. You are our living Savior, our living hope in the midst of a culture, in the midst of the end of all things, whenever, whenever that happens. God, you are our hope. We, have, we do not have to live in this life as though there is no hope, but we can live with confident and complete hope because of you. So help us to lean in to that promise and to you, our Savior. And for anybody in here who has never given their life to you, I pray that they would do that. I'm not even going to pray a prayer for them. They know what they need to say. They know what they need to do. I pray that they would just give their life to you, that they would accept you. They know you're going to prompt them what to say. They know what to do. God, I pray that they would accept you right now, today, so that their name can be in the, in the book of life so that their name is solidified. When they stand before you, the judge, that you will say, yep, this one's pardoned. We're good. They are following me. They have tried to follow me. They weren't perfect, but, but they were faithful. They did their best. They believed in me. God, help us to follow you. Help us to love you like you have loved us. Our living hope. We pray this and ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.